Welcome to the interview series, New Books in African-American Studies, where writers of African-American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and today I have the opportunity to speak with Boris L. Nunley, the author of Keeping It Hushed, The Barbershop and African-American Hush Heart. Hello. Welcome to the interview series, New Books in African-American Studies, where writers of African-American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and today I have the opportunity to speak with Boris L. Nunley, the author of Keeping It Hushed, The Barbershop and African-American Hush Harbor Rhetoric. If you want to know anything about Black talk, Black discourse, and Black rhetoric, how it's generated, how it applies to Black people, and how it is often understood and sometimes misunderstood when it's directed towards whites, you need to read Boris L. Nunley's book. But before you do, why don't you listen to this interview where he explains a lot about African-American rhetoric. Hi, Boris. Hello, Sean. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Today, we're speaking with Boris Nunley, who is Professor of English and Rhetoric at the University of California, Riverside. And today, we're discussing Nunley's most recent book, Keeping It Hushed, The Barbershop and African-American Hush Harbor Rhetoric, published by Wayne State University Press in 2011. In this book, the Black Barbershop becomes a driving trope to discuss other spaces where African-American discourse thrives as a way for Blacks to understand themselves and to theorize Black life and culture. In relation to African-American hush harbor rhetoric, Nunley makes a bold claim. He says, if you don't know African-American hush harbor rhetoric, then you don't know Black people or their subjectivities or perspectives. I'm happy to have Boris on New Books in African American Studies today so that he can expound on that claim and other insightful provocations that he reveals in his book. Boris, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? I was born in Southern California, uh, born and raised there, and I'm a product proudly of uh, junior college and public universities. Um, the way I fell into rhetoric is quite interesting because it was uh, incidental. I was originally interested in psychology, uh, but had a love for African American literature. And uh, I applied to the state program uh, for like the top 5% of students in psychology. And for some odd reason, uh, I wasn't accepted, and I was just befuddled by that. So my mentor, her fly away, George Johnson, said, well, why don't you apply for literature? <laughs> and so I just did that on a lark because I just didn't think that what I had been told, I'd actually do any teaching in, in, in literature, that I'd be relegated to composition. Well, I ended up getting accepted to this program in literature, and I decided, well, if I'm going to be in literature, I should have some skill that I think would be remarkable in a variety of different places. I chose rhetoric and composition, and, uh, and it just took off from there. So I ended up incidentally falling into something that I really come to really enjoy and love. Very nice. So you say that you're a product of Southern California. Where where were you born exactly? Are in Los Angeles. I was born in the mystical South Central Los Angeles, 
that really doesn't exist, but certainly seems to. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was born there, never LA Coliseum. So, so, so being a um, a professor at um, University of California Riverside is that is that uh, like being at home or no? Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. It's, it's it's really kind of a liminal space. It's like it's being home in the sense that um, LA is within an hour's drive, and if you're a Southern Californian, you know, an hour's drive is nothing. It's like walking around the block. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm quite able to immerse myself in, you know, African-American culture and the kind of vibe and zeitgeist of Los Angeles. But on the other hand, Riverside might as well be not just 16 miles from L.A., but 120 miles from L.A. It's an ex-oberb. The politics are very conservative in many ways. It's a mom-and-pop community. So, um, UC Riverside itself ends up being a, a rather <laughs> twilight zone in the, middle, in the middle of a kind of conservative utopia. And so it's uh, it's great that I have such close access to home and, and the student body is so diverse in a really kind of fundamental way. And I don't mean just in terms of bodies, I mean in terms of politics. So that's great. But Riverside is a city unto itself and it's quite, quite disconcerting in some ways, but I'm really glad to be here. It's, it's more it's better to be home, or close to home, to not be there at all. Okay. You know, I was uh, struck by your um, by your book overall. I think it's very well written. I mean, you're an, you're an exquisite writer. Um, your acknowledgments also are extremely well written, and, and I was wondering if you wanted to say a word about uh, your parents, Doris and, and Lafayette. You mentioned, as an aside, right at the opening in the uh, acknowledgments that your mom would have gotten a PhD, uh, uh, you know, um, had had she been uh, born in another era. Can you talk about that a little bit? You actually did read the book very closely. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, you got to talk about it. Well, my mom was from a small town in Oklahoma, uh, Yuba, Oklahoma, as a matter of fact, um, and uh, she played high school basketball and. I, my love for reading um, and, and, and discussion of ideas and contemplating of, of, of philosophy, that sort of thing, really all emerges from her. Uh, she's traveled. Uh, she discusses politics. Even at 78, we, we can talk about politics for four or five hours, movies, that sort of thing. But because she was a black woman, and I don't have to go into that, that kind of relegated her to certain kinds of positions. She worked for the county of LA, and so she was. She has retirement. So she uh, she also raised kids. So as many black women, uh, she really had to kind of straddle two worlds. And uh, she's smart. She's thoughtful. I get my sense of uh, independence, uh, <laughs> and actually a little bit of my ironiness from her. So she's quite an amazing woman in that way. And again, and again, had she been 20 before, 20 years later, 10 years later, she would have had a PhD and well before I did, and I probably would have been better for it. So yeah, she's really the kind of, uh, I think, the intellectual fulcrum of the family. Uh, it's not to diminish my pops, because my father, I think what I get from him is, from him is my sense of adventurousness and courage. I mean, he left a small town of Texas and in California, migrated to California, and uh, started his own business. Was very successful at it. So, I'm you know I'm 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 one of those people who clearly understands that I didn't do this by myself, and that uh, you know my ancestors, in this case my mother and father, made much of this possible for me. So I'm not 
I'm not under any illusions about that. And yet you went across the nation to go to grad school. Is that true? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, right? I mean, that, 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 that memory is interesting. Adventurism, the kind of frontier individualism, a part of the family that just, I mean, it's part of my kind of culture DNA, I guess. But there were real reasons for doing it. Um, as I said earlier, I knew I wanted to go on rhetoric and composition. And I wanted to, I had this kind of Janice based uh, uh, relationship to my work, right? I really wanted to do rhetoric, rhetoric and composition, but it was also vitally important to me to do something African American culture. And for me, the colleges that did that the best were about all bag east, and that meant Penn State, Syracuse, and some others. And then, of course, that meant that that's how I got introduced to Keith Billiard. So that's why I went. Okay. And, and of course, that's at, as you mentioned, uh, of, of Penn State and, and Keith Gilliers, that is a professor of English uh, at Penn State. That's correct. He was at Syracuse at that time, but. Uh, went to Penn State the year that I arrived there. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, now, you mentioned that uh, you wanted to do rhetoric and composition, and one of the interesting things about your book, however, is mm-hmm. that it is uh, very interdisciplinary. As a matter of fact, in um, the introduction in which you take pains to lay out beautifully what the theoretical thrust of this project is, before doing so, you say that it's interdisciplinary and traverses critical theory, philosophy, cultural studies, rhetoric, history, popular culture, literature, uh, and religion. So how is it that you came to write such an interdisciplinary book on this topic? Uh, What influenced me in terms of that is uh, Tony Morrison. Uh, uh, as anyone who's really related to knows, always deals with issues of blackness. And like, for example, now there's this, there's this discussion about post-blackness and Turay, uh being concerned about there's no one way to be black. And what always impressed me about Toni Morrison is she didn't have those issues because she was very clear that being black precluded her from, from excuse me, being black recruited her from nothing that was human. So she could be both black and fully human. And so I always kind of understood that in order to really get a sense of what it was to be African-American or what it is to be black in particular sorts of ways, that meant that I had to have a, had to have a broad stroke, a broad perspective on how African-American culture circulated and what, it, and, and, and what that meant. So, I mean, can one really understand Again, what it is to be African American without understanding philosophy, uh, literature, etc. You, you, you add that to my own kind of intellectual consciousness, so for good or ill, that's why I thought I had to approach it. Um, and that was the most interesting way for me to do it. So, methodologically speaking, given my own kind of penchants, and because, again, of Tony Morrison, that's why I wrote the book the way that I did, versus trying to do an ethnography. Mm-hmm. And the barbershop figures largely um, in the in the in the monograph. I mean, you open up with uh, a, a, a couple of uh, nice um, epigraphs. One of them from Ralph Ellison, in which you, in which he says, "There is nothing like a Negro barbershop for hearing 
what Negroes really believe. And then you enlarge on that in the introduction. Can you tell us why the barbershop is uh, so important? Um, David Delaney, um, who wrote a book about race and space, uh, talked about this, the significance of space to what it is to be ethnicity and what it is to be African-American, and even which led me to think about uh, the Middle Passage, right, which arguably one could argue is the kind of crucible of where African-American ethnicity uh, uh, was created. In that sense, you have these divergent African uh, ethnic groups in this one space, and then there's some kind of transformation that goes on, and then they land on our church, et cetera. Uh, and so I just, as I was reading uh, throughout my undergraduate and graduate career, it, was, it just always struck me how significant space was African-American culture, whether it was uh, uh, the slave quarters, whether it was the juke joint, uh, uh, a ghetto, et cetera, et cetera. And as an African-American male, uh, it was just always interesting to me how uh, the barbershop was this kind of protein space for African-American discourse of all sorts. It was uh, class, uh, very unruly in terms of class, even around sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, the barbershop provided me an opportunity to kind of ground my analysis of something that I thought uh, African-Americans would already have a grasp of whether there would be male, female, et cetera, because, of course, we know the black women would often take their kids there with a beauty shop or a barbershop. So that's why I kind of grounded it there, because I wanted to make this broader claim in terms of African-American horsehopper rhetoric, see this tradition, or this philosophical tradition, because the tradition, but in order to get access to that, I thought it would be, I needed to ground it in a particular space, So that's why the barbershop was so important. Is African-American... Hush Harbor rhetoric, your neologism? Uh, <laughs> here I'm going to sound like I'm waffling, but I'm not. Uh, yes and no. And so when I say no, what I mean by that is the term Hush Harbor uh, is borrowed from African enslaved, enslaved African Americans or enslaved Africans when they'd be out in the woods or in a cane break, they would call it a Hush Harbor or, or a Hush Harbor, et cetera, et cetera. And another iteration of that was Hush Harbor. And so from that, uh, and by the way, I was introduced to that term through uh, Lawrence Levine's Black Culture, Black Consciousness book, which was really my introduction to how to theorize African American culture in a particular sort of way when I was a uh, second year undergrad. Uh, and so um, I just noticed how that those rhetorics, whether it was literature, movies, etc., which again is why it's going to disciplinary, I just seem to be everywhere. So to me, that meant that I could talk about it as a tradition. So the notion of a hush hopper tradition is 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 my term, but again, it was certainly borrowed from and heavily influenced by. Uh, 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 enslaved African Americans. For me, it's perfect, right? Because then it gives this this, this term its own. It's, its history is embodied or messed in the term, even though I articulate it in my own sort of way. What exactly is African American hush harbor rhetoric? 
Um, put it very simply, African-American hush rhetoric can be understood as the kind of black talk, epistemic knowledge, philosophies that are grounded in African-American worldviews, tropes, and realities. It was what Michael, uh, this was my name right now, but it was one African-American scholar refers to as black life worlds. So African-American hush harbor rhetoric emerges out of those black spaces, black life worlds that are uh, within what African-American uh, uh worldviews, normals, and again, realities are both constructed uh, and, and also are emerged from. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. You use the barbershop films from the early turn of the century both of them to sort of explain what uh, Hush Harbor rhetoric is and is not. Can you tell our listeners um, uh, what it is and is not using those films? That's a great question. Uh, and it's actually something I get to do wrong when I read. And in terms of how we have to understand, uh, how we can understand Obama's more perfect union speech, uh, I think those movies are are, are key because one, they occur in a barbershop, so clearly it's about and in in a black so called black urban area. So clearly it's a space where black people feel safe. And Cedric the Entertainer, who I, in my book I argue is a kind of philosopher, even makes that clear because he says at one point he says, "Look, y'all, normally I wouldn't say that in front of white savers, in front of white people, but in front of you, I'm going to say A, B, and C." Later on, for example, which became a kind of uh, both a internet storm and a uh, territorial storm in terms of black culture, when in the movie they critiqued Jesse Jackson. And uh, such the entertainer response, you know, very, very pointedly by saying, look, in the Hush Harbor, we can talk about anyone anytime and anywhere we want, because if we can't do it here, and to me this is vitally important, we can't do it anywhere. So here you have in this really kind of pithy comedy, a real kind of understanding of how the public sphere isn't this kind of uh, free zone, rhetorical free zone, that in actuality it's going to be very dangerous for African Americans. So I think in terms of, of it being hush harbor rhetoric, that is a very productive way to uh, a very productive way in which it engaged in the rhetoric uh, and the tradition. The problem is, is that the way it engaged in its talk was in ways to make it comfortable for white audiences. So, for example, uh, a really kind of interesting point in the movie is when Frederick the Entertainer says, well, there's three things that black people need to stop lying about. <laughs> and he talks about OJ, right? And he talks mm-hmm. about need to go through this kind of litany. Well, in Hush Harbors, we don't talk about just what black people lie about, we talk about what white people lie about. Mm-hmm. And this would have been a perfect opportunity to do that. And of course, yes, we understand that white folks are, are not a monolith, et cetera, et cetera, but white folks and white is hegemonic. Uh, and so for the film to not do that, right, and to really kind of address black issues in a way that most white people would say, oh, yeah, well, that's right, that would make them feel comfortable. Is exactly why I think the, they were able to make another movie because it really didn't challenge their sense of 
uh, a privilege. Uh, and so for me, it is both a hush, it's a hush harbor film in terms of its form and in its style and in its politics in terms of its ability to go beyond a domesticated kind of blackness. But it's not a hush harbor film in the sense that if I'm white, I can leave there and I don't want to cut the butt off, right? So that's why for me, it, 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 it doesn't qualify for that. It, it makes me think of the film that Latifah was in, Beauty Shop, which was a cousin to the barbershop film. But for me, it didn't ring as a hush harbor film because I'm an African-American man. I watched this film about black women, and I'm walking out the film, and I'm feeling happy and, 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 and cheerful. And it's like, I should walk out of that film kind of like, well, what the hell are they talking about? Having my political buttons pushed, and none of that really happened. So mm-hmm. that's why I think what you've asked is a is really pertinent question because one has to be kind of clear that while there is, uh, while black folks are not monolithic, neither are white, there are these kind of political rationalities that that discipline into place what is seen as uh, acceptable speech and unacceptable speech. So can you give us a popular culture example of uh, African-American hush harbor rhetoric? Would Sam Greenlee's spook who sat by the door be an example? Um, would you think, would you consider Invisible Man an, an example? <laughs> um, I would consider uh, Greenlee's piece to be, certainly be hush harbor in, in, in a, in a particular sort of way, so no doubt about that. Um, Invisible Man is a little more ambivalent in that sense because certainly uh, he addresses issues of the black folks and black knowledges are really, really grounded in, right? So, for example, this notion of capital paint, where the whitest white is white because it has a drop of black paint, right? Or you have uh, I am what I am. And so this kind of existential notion of the importance of the yam. So all of that is certainly about black culture. But on the other hand, at the end of the novel, he does end up in a, right, in an underground cave. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and he is invisible in a certain kind of way. So not to take anything away from Ellison, because obviously I quoted him pretty uh, in my book and, and it influences what I do. Uh, but I think it's telling that the second book, when he actually had to get out of <laughs> out of the cabin, as it were, out of, Plato, uh, out of Plato's cave and be in the world, that book never got written. And I would argue that part of that is to bring into the world this kind of hush of blackness is another thing than when you end up in a cave. Does, does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. In your introduction, you refer to um, uh, Kanye West. And I'm, I, I, and and it struck me that as I was reading through the book that one example of public publicizing African American hush harbor rhetoric could be when when Kanye West said um, during the in the aftermath of the Hurricane Katrina uh, disaster that President Bush does not like black people or doesn't care about black people. Of that to be the very first episode of Boondock uh, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, 
that 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 first scene in, in the so-called riot and in, in this kind of bucolic white area, and the boy wakes up. Uh, you hear the slaps, and Huey wakes up, and his father says, "You have that dream where his grandfather says you're having that dream again, where you tell white folks the truth. Well, you better not ever tell white folks the truth. I'm about to go live to a white man right now." And what's interesting is when I show that clip to white audiences. They get it, and they laugh. But, of course, one of the reasons why they can get it and laugh because it's an animated feature, so it allows them to take it in ways that they wouldn't take it if maybe if I were on the stage and I said that. So you're exactly right. But now let's – I want to move into a a, um, a a series of questions in which I want to challenge – not not contradict or challenge some of the things you've said, but, I, I, but there's some, some touchy points in here that I want to get to. But first, before that, uh, I, I want you to be able to speak to a moment that, in, that you, where you begin to lay out the theoretical foundation for this book. And you make a, a beautiful statement, I think. You say sometimes it's as if Patricia Hill Collins, the, the sociologist that does race, class, and gender and sexuality, mm-hmm. and Geneva Smitherman, you know, the mother icon of, um, of black language studies and sociolinguistics, you said it's mm-hmm. almost as if they have never written seriously about African-American language and mm-hmm. that we have to sort of always uh, reclaim or refront those ideas. Um, and so then you do lay out yours. You, you want to speak to speak to that? Uh, yeah. Um, I, to be, to be frank, I look at it as a kind of epistemological and philosophical erasure. In other words, uh, what black folks have to say about black people, that gets taken up in the literature and in the academic imaginary in a way that there's actually a history and one has to continually refer to it in order to be legitimate. But seemingly, when you have black folks like the two women, two, uh, like Dr. Smetherman Hill and, and others, uh, that it's almost as if if we're not writing about ourselves or, or about difference, then it has no theoretical or epistemic purchase. So, for example, I'm always kind of amazed that when folks talk to me about my book, uh, and in this case, particularly white folks, uh, there's always this emphasis on the barber shop, but there's not this, there's not a lot of talk about the theory, right? Because what I said about Hush Harbors as a theory or as a method can be applied uh, in discussions that have nothing to do with African Americans. I mean, there are gay bars, right? There are places, places and spaces that women go, that folks who identify as queer go, that this is very, very much part of that theory. But it doesn't get taken up in that way. And I think that happens to black scholars, African-American scholars, scholars of scholars of color. It happens all the time. So uh, I remember seeing Michael Eric Dyson uh, one time, and, and uh, everyone was clapping. And I went and asked seven of my colleagues what they thought about what he had to say, right? And this is reminiscent of what we heard around Obama in his public speeches. And every person, they were all professors, said to a word, how great his performance was. But they said nothing about uh, him in terms of his theory or the creation of knowledge. So I'll let us just say that I have this little pithy way of going about this. Well, I said, well, you know, don't you know 
the black folks, the black women, the people of color, y'all don't know nothing. And of course, that seems to be very provocative. But when I break it down, it's very, the actuality, well, look, how, how do you legitimize yourself in an academy? And you and both of us attend conferences and all the time. It's right? just like, you have to refer to someone who is French or German mm-hmm. or whatever. And look, I don't have to understand, I don't need to know anything about Foucault to understand the prison industrial complex. I don't. Right? But it just seems like very frequently that folks of color just disappear in that sort of way in terms of the actually being sites, into the sites that produce theory, et cetera. So that's what I'm getting to when I say that. Yes, thank you for that. I I, I appreciate that. Um, okay, so it seemed to me from reading the book that African American spaces where African American hush harbor rhetoric generates was or are I should say not just was um, spaces where Black people could speak openly and freely. Uh, in ways that would not bring uh, censure from white spectatorship or white audiences. Is that fair to say? I, 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 yes, but with one, I want to push it against the little. It's not that it wouldn't bring censure. Uh, it's just that they're in these spaces that white folks do not monitor as closely, and therefore black folks feel more safe in those spaces. And the reason why I, I you know, it's, it's, it's not mere uh, academic pettiness. Uh, uh, there's, a, for example, there's a space here in Los Angeles called Zambezi uh, 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 Square, Congo Square, which is a black space. And there's an African American woman who, who, who owns a car shop there. Now, here you have a black space within a black space. But one time she said to me that, that if a white person enters into that space, then the whole tenure of the conversation changes. It's like bell hooks theorized, but that presence changes the shape of our words. So it's not merely that this kind of talk can go on. It's that white folks don't tend to uh, surveil it or monitor it in the same sort of way. So that's the only kind of pressure I put on it. But otherwise, I agree. Okay. So how then do we understand the irony of Moments in films like Barbershop, how do we understand the irony in the in the Boondocks um, uh-huh. episode, where clearly white audiences are consuming um, uh, what either is or is um, fronted as being hush harbor rhetoric? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is an irony there, and I think that your question is one of the most odds we kind of kept on the table, right? Um, because we do want to have some kind of nuance. I do want to have some kind of nuance to what I'm saying. But it's really not ironic, right? Because we know uh, from the Mr. Show forward, uh, some would argue uh, uh, that indeed African-American, excuse me, the American popular culture is really African-American culture, or, not, or less provocatively, that American popular culture is grounded in so many ways in terms of how it circulates transnationally in black popular culture. So blackness has always been a commodity to be sold. So therefore, black white folks right, will consume black culture in, in a movie, in any kind of cultural production. However, to occupy the spaces where those knowledges emerge from, well, that's different because then your body has to be at risk. 
Because one thing to be at home watching this sort of thing. Uh, it's another thing to be in a theater. But it's another thing to be in a black barbershop. And you and I understand that <laughs> for all its uh, 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 issues, both uh, good or ill, it's that this embodiment of it is a whole different kind of, of notion. So there really is no contradiction there as far as I'm concerned. And I think even more importantly, and again, I think uh, folks who've been in barbershops and beauty shops understand this, these knowledges aren't stagnant. So by the time this stuff is uh, uh, produced out for public consumption, the folks in those hush harbors are concerned with other spaces, I mean, with, excuse me, with other issues and other conversations. So it's not a stagnant, uh, stale, petrified sort of place. So because you have this back and forth, uh, this kind of space that is both, as Williams would say, have an emerge, it has an emergent tradition, right? And a tradition that's not really a residual tradition, or one that's already there. That's why you can, on one hand, have this kind of public consumption by whites, but without the political danger that it means to really occupy those spaces on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to uh, skip around a little bit. Um, uh, some uh, listeners who may not have read the book yet may not know that I'm skipping around, but there's certain chapters uh, in the book in which you deal with, again, the, the way in which the barbershop is figured in in certain cultural um, um, products like lawn um, elders ceremonies and, and dark old men. Um, again, you revisit um, Ralph Ellison's um, Invisible Man, but you also talk about some contemporary um, phenomena, such as um, Barack Obama's race speech that you mentioned at the outset, and the the um, moment that uh, spawned that speech, which was the conflict that the media created between his rhetoric and and, and Reverend Jeremiah Wright. Can you talk about African-American hush harbor rhetoric in terms of white and black spectatorship or consumership of that rhetoric in relationship to that controversy? Uh, now, you know I'm going to like you now because that's a real great question. And I actually have to think about this. <laughs> so give me a second. Uh, but it, it's really a rev- relevant question question right let me let me uh, throw something else out there um, okay go ahead. I, i'm not going to complicate the question but i'm going to try to tell you a li- little bit what i'm thinking about okay, you have yeah, you have beautiful terms that you introduce um you talk about the podium auction block um mm-hmm. rhetoric or or position i would say that sometimes african americans occupy in order to gain or uh I, I say gain a white audience that's that's the way i perceived it or at mm-hmm. least to get a white ear or mm-hmm. or hearing from whites that won't turn them away and you and you yeah. and you mention this in relationship to obama's race speech mm-hmm. and in juxtaposition to jeremiah um writes rhetoric the way it was cast not just i mean because we're in an election year because mm-hmm. so many um people who support Barack Obama um, uh, hear him. Some people say differently. Whites hear him differently from, from, from the way blacks hear him. I just wonder mm-hmm. if you could you know, speak to that. Uh, yeah, that, that helps a lot. Uh, so I, I think the way to begin would, would be to, to take up a Jeremiah Wright and uh, 
uh, in the Obama kind of controversy. I think, first of all, what I want to foreground is that this is not some notion of one selling out and the other not selling out. I, I just think that's too reductive. It's not very productive in trying to understand the phenomenon that you're kind of pushing me on, and rightfully so. Uh, you had Jeremiah Wright, who had, who had given over 800 speeches, uh, but the furor around his uh, his rhetoric was basically around two speeches uh, that he gave at Trinity Baptist Church. Now, Trinity Baptist Church is a hushabit church. Yes, you have some whites who go there, but the audience was primarily, primarily black. Primarily African-American folks and knowledges were defined, or excuse me, deployed there. And certainly black perspective, black humor, black ways of knowing were uh, 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 circulated there. Uh, and so there's this furor in the public. And let's face it, uh, while there were black folks who did not agree with, obviously didn't agree with Jeremiah Wright, most African-Americans, I would argue, um, would, would say, I understand where it's coming from. Uh, many of us were just basically unsettled and referred to him as a hate monger, or et cetera, et cetera, and just were really unsettled by the, by, by the talk. So now what happens is, is, and this is where it gets sticky. From David Walker, Mariah Stewart, to Frederick Douglass, to Martin Luther King, Ellen Baker, et cetera, et cetera, Black folks who, who try to get some public hearing always have understood that he speaks differently in front of white folks that he do in front of black folks, period. Now, we in, in academia, we like to play the fluidity card, and that's fine. But out there in the, in the political world, there are consequences for certain kinds of speeches. And there are certain folks in common places, right, that one must engage in when they want to get a public hearing. So, Jeremiah Wright's speech, his post harbor rhetoric, his parisia, his plain speaking truth to power, he was able to do that because he made his speeches in front of an audience that was grounded in hush harbor rhetoric. Obama, however, was concerned not with just black folks, but with the weak, right? And so, therefore, when he begins the perfect union speech, he talks about, for example, he begins with a notion of American exceptionalism, the shiny city on the hill, right? The same kind of trope that, by the way, Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Pericles, there's a history of that kind of talk. And when you engage in those tropes, white folks, not out of some necessarily prejudice or, or a kind of hegemony, but they sit in the culture and they resonate and therefore it gives them an end. Secondly, it was the black folks and white folks, I would argue, is because when Obama says we, and this is where I think he's brilliant, and I'm actually down with him, when he says we, unlike many white politicians who, when they get in public office, say we, but we all know they don't mean everyone. They don't mean black folks. They don't mean lesbians. They don't mean queers. They don't mean a whole bunch of other folks. When Obama says we, to put it here, we all think that he means we. It doesn't mean, for example, that he's going to have a policy that is going to necessarily be to the benefit of all black people, but we know, we feel that he's not out to get us. Mm -hmm. And so, in terms of white and black dictatorship, uh, and I think <laughs> that you're alluding to, this is where African Americans can become complicit, because I've heard it said time and time again, 
that, well, in terms of Obama's resistance to speak about race. Well, he's the better shouldn't have to speak about race because if he doesn't, he won't get uh, the white vote. So he's, it's a kind of black pragmatism. But I get that. But my problem with that is it's twofold. The dismissal of the Reverend Wright, right, as a matter of fact, in, in the more perfect union speech, Obama talks about how he won't uh, totally get rid of or dismiss Jeremiah Wright because he's so important to him. But on the other hand, he talks about black anger as being part of another era. And that, and this is key, he says in this speech, Obama, that racism is essential to the American project. And to think otherwise is off just to be almost crazy. Well, look, African-Americans, as I've already said, are not monolithic. But I, but I, I don't think I have to go on a limb to say most African-Americans understand that racism is central to the American project. It's not epiphenomenal to it. So when Jeremiah Wright says this, he's on, he's on African-American, on firm African-American epistemic ground. Uh, so my problem with this easy dismissal of Jeremiah Wright and this notion of black pragmatism is this. It's just a pedagogical model, you know, public pedagogy. So in the future, when a white politician runs and he says, or she says, well, you know what? I'm not going to talk about black issues because if it does, it costs me black votes, or it costs me white votes, excuse me, then black folks have no claim to anything against that. We don't have any ground to, to uh, resist that because we've already argued this type of pragmatism. Mm -hmm. So in terms of black spectatorship, this is what I see as being an issue. So in other words, are we trying to say pedagogically that if a brother or sister is trying to get on, then don't play or hate, engage in the kind of domesticated rhetoric that doesn't talk about race. Because if, if that's what we're saying, then I see that to be problematic. And, and so now I think you can see my take on Obama and Wright and not to dismiss President Obama, I dismiss his pragmatism, but as a rhetorician, we're always concerned with effect, not concerned with effect. And this takes us back to Kanye West. See, what Kanye West was really hip about, uh, Taylor Smith, Taylor Swift aside, is that neoliberalism is affecting how we think about blackness. Blackness is being disarticulated from the political and being admitted to a commodity. So when he things and all falls down, right? That he can't even go into a grocery store without one of his watches. Here he understands that blackness is more increasingly being connected to consumerism and being domesticated uh, instead of being articulated to the political. And what I'm so what I'm saying in terms of black spectatorship is there is this increasing tendency to reduce blackness to a style, to reduce it to consumption. And so a brother can't play or hate, which means you can't be critical, which means whatever's going on is cool as long as as long as buffers can make money from it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I think this Obama right discussion is so vitally important. What's wrong with the commodification of blackness? What's the problem? Um the problem with it is um and I hear the request where I want to kind of 
that's the way for your question. It's, not, it's inevitable in some ways. What I'm getting to in terms of the problem is, is that then what you can do is have black folk who make appeal to political trolls, like the black community, right, or are seeking for black people, and actually in their practices risking nothing in order to do that. So it's what I call blackness without obligation. So they can benefit personally from black oppression, but actually in their behavior and in their practices, are not, they don't have to be committed to it in any way other than what serves them. And an example of that would be, uh, there are like several examples, uh, the selling of BET, the selling of Essence Magazine. Mm-hmm. Let's stick with that. You have Essence Magazine. Uh, we all know that that's a black magazine that made its bones, as it were, became popular, as it were, because how is that with that issue? It's up for sale. I have no problem with that. You can sell it to whomever you want. But when it was sold, uh, the sellers of Vessels Magazine, who I believe are actually black men, actually said, and this was in the paper, that, well, why can't they act like white people, like the white businessmen? Well, if that's the case, then what's all this other history? It's black as a commodity. When it makes you money, then you're black. But when it's going to cost you something, then all of a sudden you become American. Then you're going to be able to act like anyone else. And that's the problem with the commoditization of blackness, that it's blackness without obligation. And this is the problem I have with someone like Perret, who has totally taken this notion of post-blackness and taken it places where it wasn't intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... And, and, and so here you have a guy, and I, and I think uh, you can help me with this. Who wrote the book? Oh, Randall Kennedy wrote the book about uh, Toure and post blackness. Essentially, said, "Well, Toure is probably never that he's married to someone who's not black and trying to justify his lifestyle," which I think is totally is totally correct. You can marry whoever you want, but the notion that somehow black people really think there's only one way to be black—which black person thinks that? I've never met a black person who ever even thought that. So it's really a straw. It's a really a straw man. You throw up this singular notion of blackness, so you can argue against it. So definitely, you can do whatever you want. And if you can do whatever you want, then what does blackness mean? Mm-hmm. So for me, there is the problem. I'm gonna just uh, hang on to the um, this latter chapter that we've been talking about between uh, that that takes up the controversy, uh, Obama right controversy, just for a moment, another moment, and ask you to think about something that you didn't address in this chapter um but that is featured in that speech it's a it's a a image that obama evokes um when what that he ends the, his speech with about ashley a white woman mm-hmm. who's about 22 or 23 and one of his she's a, a campaign manager um, and um, there's a black man, nameless, and uh, the black man says, Obama recalls or, or retells the story, that he's in that room because of Ashley. Right. Now, the reason why that's, the reason why I raised that here and that, that image stays in my mind is because to me, that's the most problematic image that Obama could ever have uttered, and that that does so much work for easing white consciousnesses, because you have you have this figure of a sort of 
um, emasculated black man and his elderliness, mm-hmm. and also a kind of uh, non-agency in his namelessness, and he gives over any power, any idea, or any um, uh, rhetoric, I should say. He gives over this entire speech act to the 22-year-old <laughs> um, still adolescent white female. Mm-hmm. Just wonder if you mm-hmm. have any perspective on that in terms of in terms of the re- rhetorical situation or the rhetorical import of that. Uh, Rashad, I think you're dead on. And uh, 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 when I write about that again, I'm going to say exactly what you said, and not give you any credit. I think you're exactly right on. Uh, and what I, and so let me use that to, to make another point. Part of that image in terms of its effect is problematic because what it does is it participates in what I re- what I think about in terms of neoliberalism or black neoliberalism. And of course, we, when I talk about neoliberalism, I don't mean liberalism in terms of Democrats and Republicans. I mean this primary economic, social, and even religious paradigm where social relations, religious relations, and political relations get reduced to the ethos of the market, right? So it's not about politics, it's about the market. And part of that market rhetoric is about privatization. So let's go back to what you just pointed out. And and this is what the problem is for me and why his speech was able to do the work it did. He takes Ashley and talks about Ashley's issues. He takes this black man's history and he erases it, basically, and compares her experiences to his experiences in his history. And earlier in the speech, he makes this kind of move on different occasions where he will talk about, like, say, affirmative action. So you have black history where black folks have been whipped, murdered, etc. This is historical fact. And then he compares that to white folks who, in his words, feel like affirmative action has been working against them, as if affirmative action has circumscribed their life chances. Well, reasonable people can agree or disagree about that. Actually, I don't believe that, but let's just say it anyway. But the problem with that is notice what's happened here. He has removed history and privatized racial discussion to my personal experience, your personal experience, and therefore it's a watch. So... Obama can get the level of black folks because he actually is brave enough to talk about black anger, brave enough to talk about uh, black historical oppression, but on the other hand, flips the script and then compares white feelings with no history of that in terms of history of analysis. And that's the privatization of black, of race talk, of black experience, of racism, and I mean, for me, finally, the proof of that is, look at what happened when uh, Henry Louis Gates found out, we discovered he was black, and that police officer jammed him up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, at first, Obama said it was stupid. There's this fear of response to that, and then what ends up happening? Obama says to the police officer and to Henry Louis Gates, let's go have a beer. To me, that's the privatization of racial discussion. So they can discuss it there, they're on equal ground, equal footing, and history gets uh, erased and made into 
liberalism does. It takes the political, depoliticizes it, and make it, makes it personal. So I think you are dead on about that Ashley image. And you're right. It may be, it may be even more significant than I wrote about, than, than what I chose to write about, than what I chose to vote about, excuse me, write about. So, you know, I think you're, you're dead on with that. And let me tell you something else that I take from your book and that I want to um, take into my, my, my classrooms and also into my, my own work, because uh, your book has definitely influenced me in, in so many, so many ways, is this. You just raised this point about how oh, um, when Gates was arrested, Henry Louis Gates was arrested, and there, there was some fear over that, but it was mostly from black people. Now, there are some white liberals who were concerned about it, um, and I and I can point to um, Stanley Fish, who had, who wrote an article in the New York Times about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it was a mild sort of fury. They were concerned, but in terms of like ex- expressing the fury, it, it was not as expressive as Black people's. I agree. Mm-hmm. However, action, action, got taken when white people expressed fury over Obama's statement by saying that it was a stupid act. Now, that to me shows a kind of um, disparity in American society that privileges white anger, white fury, white concerns, and consistently diminishes uh, black oppression and black uh, experience that is negative in uh, in relationship to white culture, and I and so for me the power that comes through from your book when you talk about these episodes and you try to, and you bring attention to African American experience as it is discussed in in Hush Harbor rhetoric is to say we need to listen to to Hush Harbor rhetoric even though it is Hush Harbor rhetoric meaning it can it takes place sometimes in in what I'm going to call privatized spaces or, or black spaces, but that white people need to pay attention to that. And let me, let me say why I'm, why I'm saying this, what I'm deriving from your book. As rhetoricians and as a rhetorical theorist, um, you've, you, you spend a lot of time talking about speech acts, right? Um, rhetoric and this public performance. However, when you link when you begin with a statement by Ralph Ellison that says you need to listen, mm-hmm. you know, uh, well, I'm sorry, let me let me be more specific. You quote the Invisible Man, and in, when the Invisible Man is talking to um, the Marxist brother, and he tells him that if you want to know something, you need to listen to mm-hmm. black people. <laughs> you go into that barbershop, and you will hear. Um, these things. And you later in the book, you talk about Frederick Douglass. Now, in Frederick Douglass's, um, his narrative, he tells the white abolitionists if they really want to know about slavery, they need to climb into a tree or hide themselves behind a bush and listen to the, the slave songs <laughs> on <laughs> when they're getting ready to go get their pay. You think it's a happy moment, but it's, it, it's full of pathos and you'll understand exactly what it means to be about what it means to be a slave. Otherwise, no amount of abolitionist tax pamphlets or whatever will give you that insight. Okay, Mm -hmm. that is an act of listening. And so what is it that your theory, your theoretical framework helps America, 
white America and black America to do and know about the act of listening and it's and 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 what it can do to I guess change the world. Um very clear about what I wanted to do, so here I'm going to engage some academic parsing. I'm very clear about what I wanted to do, but by giving, uh, I'm here I'm going to borrow from uh, Judith Haberson's, Zach Haberson's latest book, and the notion of the queer queer art of failure. Uh, I wrote this book knowing that it would be a failure, and this is addressing your question, because it's not, in terms of listening, John and his book, Culture on the Margin, says he, he, he analyzes what he considers to be three kinds of hearing. One would be uh, incidental, the other would be instrumental, and the final would be based off. Uh, what white folks typically do is engage in, and, and some blacks, but what white folks typically do is a kind of hegemonic block of force. Uh, they engage in what he refers to as instrumental. In other words, you hear what black folks say. You hear what they utter in terms of speech acts. But what ends up occurring is that you use it to your own purposes. Ergo, when you made reference to the Fuhrer and that it didn't become one in a kind of uh, national way until white folks uh, uh, became angry at Obama, that's what uh, instrumental hearing is, is to take black epistemes, Realities, right? And that's this is a discussion about naked realities, and that's if you want to get to that. Uh, and use it to white interest. But there's another kind of listening, which is much more difficult to engage in, is this pathos hearing, which, according to Cruz, is about listening and making the attempt not to hear it through your perceptions, right? To the extent that anyone can do that, but to, but to try to, in some way, take up the assumptions that the speaker, that the rhetorician, that the group that is speaking, take up their assumptions and take them seriously, instead of dismissing them as being merely angry, as being merely radical. And, and, and those terms are, are, are a way to, one, not listen, right, through deflection, and two, to dehumanize. Now, when I say that, I'm not being provocative. Let me put it this way. Imagine you had a feminist, a, a class, uh, a, a trend in feminist theory. And, as, and your notion would be to tell women that in order to be a feminist, you can't be angry. Well, excuse me, being angry is central to what it is to be a human being. It doesn't mean that it drives everything that you do. But we would not tell anyone that they can't be angry because they're domesticating what it means to be fully human, to wit. Black people get mad, i.e., uh, the brother on, on Oakland, Oscar Grant, I believe is his name, he gets angry, he gets shot. Black people get angry, they get a tea party. That's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Right? So when I talk about listening, it is not some kind of liberal sentimentality. And this is why I I foregrounded this by saying in terms of the poor artist failure, this is a black artist failure. Because what I really want people to do when I talk about listening is to say that look, black culture is not only a site to be theorized upon, 
the black culture is, is in and of itself theoretical material. Right. Wow. It theorizes. And what I'm arguing is, that's why I said earlier when I go to my classes, and I said, don't you know that people of color don't know nothing? So let me say it in terms of this conversation. In the public sphere, black folk, black women, queer folks, we don't know nothing. Why? Because the only time they come to us for expertise, generally, is when it has something to do with difference, mm-hmm. nothing to do with our oppression. Uh, but when it comes to theorizing, for, ex- for example, you and I both know that the, the folks we hang out with, with, yourself included, you can do your work the way you do it and not make any reference to black folks in your career would pretty much be the same as it is in certain kinds of ways. In other words, what I'm saying here is to legitimate yourself in your career in terms of productivity, et cetera, et cetera, you don't have to got it in black people. Mm-hmm. But black scholars, we cannot be legitimate if we don't know something about some kind of white theory. Mm-hmm. Right? So even in my talk here, notice what I've done, and this is why I do it. It's not to kind of try to legitimate uh, uh, black culture and black theory because it doesn't require it. But what I'm simply saying is, even I can refer to Foucault, I can refer to a number of people. You could do it, Keith could do it, uh, uh, Dr. Jones Roster could do it because we have to. But uh, white scholars, if they want to take it upon themselves to do it, but they don't have to ground themselves because, again, black theory, black theory, and the kind of work we do isn't taken seriously in that sort of way. So that takes us back to, again, what your question about listening. And for me, if you don't understand that about, if you don't take that as an assumption, then you don't see black people as fully human, which is why in my book you hear me dealing with ontology and philosophy, because I think I also have a project, a, a project around, excuse me, I think Geneva Smithers' project is not just about black culture. It is a theoretical, philosophical project. So. Um, you, in the book, you take up and enlarge um, a conversation by Cornell West on um, the rhetorical uh, principle of paideia. Yeah. Could you speak to that, to the listeners, and what the project of paideia is for you in relation to what you theorize in your book? Um, the paideia is this... Um this term borrowed from um, classical, classical traditional Greek rhetoric was essentially understanding a particular site as sites of education, right? As sites of pedagogy. And what I'm simply trying to argue in my book and in my practice is that, that there are black ideas, right? But black folks are taught uh, how to survive. Well, black theory is inculcated and a practice. When I see theory, I mean it in the sense, as I do philosophy, borrowing from Gramsci, we're all philosophers. It's just that some of us get paid for it. Mm. So we have to understand that black folks theorize, theorize. And there are places from which we get those theories. And those places aren't just classrooms. They're education. The pedagogy occurs in a variety of spaces and a variety of sites of what I call public pedagogy. Mm-hmm. And so that's why this project around the idea is vitally important because, frankly, 
<laughs> you know this even better than I, giving your work around performativity and how you go outside the academic spaces and places that most of our students, they come to, they come to us in a kind of instrumental way. In other words, they come to college to get a job. Mm -hmm. The values that they learn, the way they think about and theorize through the world, they get that from a variety of different sites. And frankly, I think the religious, excuse me, the right, the fundamentalist right, the religious right, they're far more attuned and sophisticated about that than people who are left to center. So what I'm trying to argue here is that we need to understand that there are these black bears in a variety of different places that teach, that theorize. Uh, I'll give you an example. Isn't it interesting that in hip-hop or rap music, you have these entertainers who used to go around, you know, sagging pants, et cetera, et cetera. All of a sudden now, you get cats sporting suits, right, sporting more classic kinds of style. Well, that just didn't happen out of anywhere because Jay-Z started sporting his gear like that, right? Mm -hmm. So he's actually teaching folks, teaching our children, teaching people, way to be in the world. So for me, we need to take that example and say, okay, there's public pedagogy that back to there, we need to take those those spaces seriously as a project and understand what they do in the world. And and that's what I think Wes was trying to get, that's really what I'm trying to get at. Mm -hmm. Is there anything more that you want to say um, about your book that we haven't covered in the in the Q and A? Um Actually, no. I mean, I was going to read something, but I think we pretty much we've we we we've, we've covered that. I mean, I can read a paragraph too if you'd like. Would you but please? Sort of, that, that's a normal feature, and and you know, you're so engaging. <laughs> you're so engaging, <laughs> and, and that I just enjoyed this conversation and listening to you. But it's a normal feature for authors to read a passage, and and I would 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 welcome if you would end our interview with uh, a reading. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Uh, this is from the last chapter of the book, uh, Hushaber Rhetoric and Rationalities in a Leo, Neoliberal Age. A watershed moment that will undoubtedly go down in history as pivotal, pivotal in the discussion of race in the political public sphere, Senator Obama's A More Perfect Union, otherwise known as his race speech, has a form whose trope by essence of the American imaginary is a shining city on the hill American exceptionalism. A more perfect union was presented in a context in which there was a robust discussion, particularly in Black Hush Harbors, of whether then Senator Obama's campaign discussed race enough as it relates to African Americans. While he strategically presented race and speeches in front of primarily African American audiences in Hush Harbor spaces, and then with a heavy dose of self-help discourse, as he did with his speech in South Carolina, South Carolina, Senator Obama generally avoided the topic. And let me pause here to say, he normally doesn't give that self-help talk to white audiences. That's why I could refer to it as uh, his speech as a podium rhetoric, excuse me, public podium rhetoric rather than hush rhetoric. Returning to the text, of course, the rhetorical tension President-elect Obama had to traverse is obvious. A presidential candidate cannot win the office solely on the strength of African-American vote. As a result, Senator Obama, like Frederick Douglass before him, had to direct his rhetoric to at least two, audience, to at least two audiences, one black, other white, uh, in, in addition to others. 
Unlike African-American hush harbor rhetoric, where the rhetorical goal of the rhetoric of the rhetoric is to identify with their primarily black audience, their desires, and their political rationalities, podium often by rhetoric attempts to identify with at least two with the two audiences I mentioned earlier. A more perfect union then effectively appeals to the concerns, fears, and desires of those invested in the hegemony of dominant American rationalities, white folks, and those of African Americans, preceding, during, and after their enslavement, black bodies of public display have to at least implicitly consider the spectacle of blackness, which you referred to earlier. The expectations, fetish, fear, of desire, and need for the black body to signify a particular way in the American imaginary, mm. right? So, how did President Obama accomplish this? First, he seamlessly connected the American Democratic Project to his quest for the presidency, and then both to a social theological movement toward a more inclusive American imaginary, an imaginary that for the first time can be read as implicitly including African Americans. Quote, this is one of the tasks we set forth at the beginning of this campaign to continue the long march of those who came before us. A march for a more just, more equal, more free, more caring, and more prosperous America. I choose to run for the presidency at this moment in history because I believe deeply that we cannot solve the challenges of our time unless we solve them together, unless we perfect our union by understanding that we may have different stories, we may hold common hopes, that we may love the same, we may not even have come from the same place, but we all want to move in the same direction, right? Towards a better future for the children and our grandchildren. And now we have two more paragraphs and I'll be finished. Next, President Obama's speech moves from the public podium, Oxenbach rhetoric, the recognition of hush harbor speciality, its rhetoric, and its utility. Such a move surely forges a connection with African Americans. And while he did not refer to Reverend Wright's church as a hush harbor, President Obama's description of Trinity affirms it as a black hush harbor speciality, making visible and spoken what often remains masked and blocked. President Obama understood the significance of African-American hush harbor and African-American hush harbor rhetoric and their function as host of blackness. <laughs> Excuse me. In conclusion, like other predominantly black churches, and I'm quoting here, across the country, Trinity embodies the black community in its entirety, the doctor, the welfare mom, the model steward, student, and the former gangbanger. Like other black churches, Trinity services are full of raucous laughter, and domestic body humor. They're full of dancing, clapping, screaming, and shouting that may seem jarring to the untrained ear. The church contains and for the kindness and cruelty, the fierce intelligence, and the shocking ignorance, the struggles and, and successes that love and yes, the bitterness and bias that makes up black experience in America. So for me that that <laughs> That resolves wonderfully because it brings uh, to mind Sue um, uh, Gallington, who talked about blackness and dissonance. And hush harbors, as Obama describes them, are sites of dissonance, 
but that's great, right? Because if it's dissonant and unruly, that means it contains possibilities for transformation and change. For me, that's what Hush Harper Theory, Hush Harper Reddit, and Barbershops and Beauty Shops are all about. Boris Nunley, thank you so much for spending an hour of your time with the New Books Network to discuss Keeping It Hushed, The Barbershop, and African-American Hush Harbor Rhetoric. Well, thank you very much. I'm very, very appreciative. Thank you very much. We've been listening to Boris L. Nunley talk about his provocative new book, Keeping It Hushed, The Barbershop and African-American Hush Harbor Rhetoric, published by Wayne State University Press in 2011. If you haven't done so already, go out and get your copy.